I love, I love this time of year. It's like, Jack, you love this time of year, don't you? Leaves are changing. Pumpkin pies are cooking in the oven. Jared can wear flannel shirts without sweating. He loves it. <laughs> you love it. <laughs> You're still sweating. One of my favorite things to do is to watch scary movies snuggled up, you know, on a blustery October evening. And if you know me, I, I enjoy the strange and the scary. I like this time of year, this Halloween type of year. I like mysterious stories. Next service, my mom's going to be here, and I'm going to blame her for that. She's, she is guilty for getting me involved in the strange and mysterious and the scary. I love that, the spooky part of this time of year. And so because of that, I like mysteries. And one mystery that I finally figured out this weekend in my study is the mystery concerning the number 13, the scary number. It's called the evil number, the unlucky number, also known as triskaidekaphobia. I think that's how you say it. Is anybody, Mark, is that how you say it? Not, how do you say it? How do you say it? Huh? It. Okay, it. Very good. I knew I could count on you, Mark. But that, that means the fear of the number 13. That's why some hotels don't have a 13th floor. That's why people lock their houses on Friday the 13th. And that's why the launch of the Apollo 13 a long time ago, some people didn't want the Apollo name number 13, and good reason. It was it's a bad number. People trace unlucky 13 back to Friday the 13th, October 1307, when King Philip IV of France ordered the arrest of the Knights Templar, and most of them were tortured and killed. All those scary conspiracy theories. Some people trace it even farther back than that, to the Last Supper, when Jesus sat down at the table up in the upper room and all the disciples sat down and the last person, number 13, was Judas. I don't know if I buy that. But there is one more. And I offer a new theory and it goes back even farther. It goes back to the very beginning. I'll put it to you this way. If you were to read the first two chapters of the Bible, skip the third chapter, and then start reading again, you will notice to yourself something terrible has happened. One writer says in Genesis 1 and 2, we find man in innocent, innocence. Everything is perfect. Everything's perfect. There's fellowship between God and man, but the minute you begin chapter 4, and read just as far as chapter 11, you will find jealousy, anger, murder, lying, wickedness, corruption, rebellion, and judgment. So what happened? What happened? Thirteen verses happened. Thirteen. Out of 23,145 verses in the whole Bible, these 13 verses, that's it, these 13 verses in chapter 3 have ruined everything. Everything. Everything from chapter 4 on is tainted by 13 lousy verses. Every day of your life is affected because of these 13 verses. Every problem in your family can be attributed to these 13 verses. 
The rage that builds in your gut when people make you mad is because of these 13 verses. Theologians call it the fall of man. I would like to rename it for our purposes this morning. 13, the dreary, that's what makes life miserable, relentless, meaning it never quits, drama of sin that is daily played out everywhere you go. The daily, dreary, relentless drama. It never ends. It's a five-act drama, and it's kind of like that movie Groundhog Day. You keep waking up to it every single day. It never stops. It's dreary. It tears you up, and it runs over and over and over again. It's these 13 verses, and let's read them, starting in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, She took its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and and, uh, I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you're naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, that serpent deceived me. And I ate. Thirteen verses. Thirteen verses have ruined us all. I'm going to go through these 13 verses in a five-part act with five different scenes because these scenes are played out in your life every day. And if you can understand them, you can hopefully change. Hopefully. Change. So, act one, we have the tree. Once upon a time, there was a tree. A beautiful tree loaded with delicious fruit, planted in a lush garden full of other trees. 
with delicious fruit. Did you know that? Let me read that again because I don't think we read the story like this. A beautiful tree with delicious fruit was planted in a lush garden full of other trees with delicious fruit. And God said to Adam about this tree in 2.16, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this one tree you shall not eat. Did I tell you that there was a lot of other trees there? Just one tree. Seems so simple. Just don't eat from this tree. That's it. Everything will be fine. But like you and me, Adam by nature is curious. We ask questions. What's so special about this tree? Hmm? Why can't I eat from this one tree? Clearly this tree wasn't the only tree available, and I'll say that a hundred times because I think in life we don't think there's other options, and there always are. The Garden of Eden was a garden of plenty. Everything they ever needed or wanted was there. Life was good, really good. They had face-to-face relations with God. They walked in the cool of the day with their maker. Some people say that's the pre-incarnate Christ, which I believe it is. They ate new, fresh food, fruit off the vine of other trees. They snuggled with bears and tigers. What else could they ask for? What else could they ask for? There was no need to eat from this tree. Why did they eat? And why was this tree so mysterious? I personally believe it was placed there for the purpose of worship. As everything is. It is easy to love God when everything is good. When there's no conflict and the sun is shining. But do you love God when he says, no, don't do this and trust me? Don't complain, don't fret, don't worry. Can you love God then? That is what this tree is meant to do, help Adam and Eve prove their love for God, to trust him. Worship means to give worth to something. Was God worth obeying and trusting and believing? Can you be content with what God is now providing you? Or was finding out the mystery of the tree more important than obedience? Never forget. Curiosity killed the cat. Every person in here has their own forbidden tree that is planted in your own personal Eden. Can you trust God enough to say no to your nagging curiosity of wanting to explore sin a little further. Can you be content? Or do you want more? Worship, trust God, trust His Word, and the world He planted for you without needing more. Be content. Act 2. Enter the snake. Genesis 3.1 begins in very cryptic form. Listen to it. Now, and this is right after everything was good. Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed. Everything was good. And then it says, now. And you've got to read it like that. Now. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast 
of the field the Lord God had made. Not only do we have sitting in the middle of a garden a mysterious tree, but we have slinking out of the shadows a crafty creature, cunning, smart, subtle. A sly monster has come to cause problems. Personally, like Indiana Jones, I hate snakes, everything about them. I hate their forked tongue. I hate their slithering body. I hate their slimy scales. I hate how they look at you and you don't know if they are going to leap and bite you that minute. But I've never met a snake who talks. Have you ever met a snake who talks? I've never met a snake who talks. What kind of snake is this? Strange snake. Revelations 12.9 describes him in detail. Actually, Revelations, the last book of the Bible that is going to make right everything that happens wrong here in chapter 13. Revelations 12.9 says he's the devil, he's Satan, he's the deceiver of the whole world. That ancient serpent says. Satan is the fallen angel who hates God. And to get back at him, he tries to ruin God's world and God's people by stealing, killing, and destroying. So he's coming to the garden to steal, kill, and destroy. Well, here in the story, he indwells the snake and uses him as a disguise. One writer said, all the devil needs to deceive is a creature that is willing and available to let him influence others, even you. 2 Corinthians says Satan comes in many disguises. But his disguises are always subtle. They're never overpowering. They're never irresistible because sin and temptation must come without compulsion. They must, it must come through the human being's own choice. If Satan came in his full angelic array, sword drawn under the threat of immediate death, do what I say or your head's chopped off, like some religions teach, Adam and Eve may have just reason to claim innocence. An impossibility, I couldn't resist. I should be not held accountable to something I couldn't resist. But Satan came as a lowly snake a creature inferior to man. So the blame for sin is theirs and theirs alone. Remember, no one will be acquitted before God's tribunal because they claim the devil made me do it. Once you go to 1 Corinthians 10, this passage of Scripture is usually misinterpreted. We usually misinterpret it thinking it means that when life is hard, God won't give you difficulties that you... Can't, that's not what it's talking about. Listen closely to it, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 and 14. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you. Temptation means the opportunity to sin. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Meaning, you have no excuse why you sinned. Your case is not special. You were not compelled to sin. I'll read that again. No temptation is overtaking you. It's not common to man. Meaning, you have no excuse you sinned. Your case is not special. You were not compelled to sin. It goes on, God is faithful. 
and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, free from, flee from idolatry and sin. But this is the problem, and specifically with our story. Adam and Eve didn't flee. They lingered. They lingered. And let the smooth talk of the serpent fall softly in their ears. They let it sink in. They pondered his words. It happens the same way with all of us. He approaches us with lies that are meant to tempt and destroy. Flee. Run. Don't linger. Flee. Run. Don't linger. The reason why is sin is never logical. It's seductive. So don't linger. If we go back, listen to Satan's conversation in Genesis 3, 1 through 5. He says, did God actually say, you shall not eat from any tree in a garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. See, she's engaging in the conversation. She didn't flee. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. These are, these are lies that Satan tells us. Listen to how he works. I want to show you the lie. Watch. I want you to dissect lies with me. There's really two things that are very, I would say, very common in every lie. Number one, he will start by using poisoned questions to get you to doubt God's word and his character. Poisoned questions. Some people call them loading questions. I'm going to say poison because their intention is to destroy you. The intent is to slander, to slander God and his goodness without you realizing it. Did God actually say, hmm, hmm? I read this book uh, last year. It's given to me by a good friend. Very interesting book. It's called Trust Me, I'm Lying, Confessions of a Media Manipulator. Very interesting book. It chronicles how bloggers, advertisers, and online writers manipulate you into clicking on their article because they make money if you click on their article. That's why it's, when you click one, they have another pop-up, so they make money every time you click, and so that's the point. How do they get you to click? One of the best ways, this writer said, to get you to click is to put a question mark in the title. Listen to reason why. It's scary. He asked this question. Are loaded question headlines popular? You bet. Some analysis shows a good question. A good question brings twice the response of an emphatic exclamation point. The reason's simple. When you take away the question mark, it usually turns their headline into a lie. So bloggers use them so they can get away with a false statement that no one can criticize. After the reader clicks, they soon discover that the answer to the question in their headlines obviously no, of course not, but since it was posted as a question, the blogger wasn't wrong. They were only asking. 
And he gives an example. Here's the example. And you'll see exactly, it's a very clear example to show you how question mark worked. Did Glenn Beck rape and murder a young girl in 1990? Of course not. But do you see how you wonder? Huh. Hmm. Question mark is intended to make you think it's possible or doubt what you know to be true. Did a Supreme Court judge spike punch at high school parties so girls could be raped? Hmm. Hmm. Is it possible for a boy to change into a girl just because he feels like it? Hmm. Did God really say if you eat the fruit you will die? That's how all the sins begin with that question mark. If Satan get you first to doubt what you think you really know, and you're not sure anymore, he knows he can then lead you down this path to believe that the impossible is actually possible. Every sin begins with a question that doubts the Word of God, which ultimately is an attack on him that leads you to believe, you know what, ultimately God cannot be trusted. He can't be trusted. He then, the second thing about the lie, is he downplays the cost of the sin while hyping up the benefit. So the cost of the sin here is verse 3. Oh, the woman says, well, you'll die. You'll die. You won't surely die. He's downplaying the cost, and then he gives you the hyped-up benefit. He oversells himself. You know, if you do eat it, you'll be like God. Oh, don't worry about the dying part. You want the God part. Oh, oh, oh. Hey, that's the good part. This dying part, let's not worry about that. The God part, don't you want that? Oh, don't you want that? The risk is worth the reward. Even if that risk is death, we have downplayed death so much. Oh, what's death? A momentary inconvenience. Future possibility, a figment of your imagination. Some religions, it's just a, it's a pathway to the next experience. Surely death is not as bad as it sounds. When I go to hell, I'm going to have a hell of a time. Uh-oh, he swore and said that. That's how people view hell now. It's just a joke. It's a joke. It's not that bad. So go ahead. Because if you... Get what you want now. Even if you might die from doing it, it'll be so worth it, won't it? Sleep with her. Sleep with her. It's no big deal. Nothing will happen. You'll have fun. Drink. Drink up. Some people have ruined their life on alcohol and drugs, but you won't. You'll love it. Lie, cheat, steal at work. Everybody else is. How else are you going to get ahead? Huh? Downplay the risk. Hype up the uptake. The possibilities are endless. That leads us to Act 3, when sin becomes sin. Eve listens, Eve looks, Eve likes, and Eve eats. This is when sin becomes sin. James 1, 13 to 15 is a very important book. It's a verse. It says, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires. They want, and then they're enticed. I'm going to take it. 
Then after the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. It gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to the promise by God, which is death. Promises also come in the negative. Not just the positive all the time. We only want God's positive promises, not his negative ones. Some people wonder if if only the woman should be to blame. No, the woman committed a sin of what's the commission. She acted against God's will. Adam committed a sin of omission. He did nothing when he should have stepped in. He was by the woman when she ate. She was active in her sin. He was passive, but they're both rooted in the same desire to have what I want outside the will of God. John 1, um, 1 John chapter 2, 15-17 calls these desires worldly. They both had a worldly desire for the fruit that was offered in a tree that was forbidden. And they are, encompass three things. 1 John 2 calls the first one the lust of the eyes. This is where Eve sees it and wants it. Look at verse 6. So, when a woman saw that the tree was good for food, she sees and covets. It's the lust of the eyes. We call this covetousness, wanting what is not yours, what is not rightfully yours to have. But I want it. I want it. People want because they think that thing they want offers more than what God has already given. That thing I want offers me more than what I already have. It's a new promise. It's a new reward. It's a new experience. A new joy outside of the provision of God. It's going outside of God's means to get what I think I should have. Covetous. Then it's lust of the flesh where Adam and Eve taste it and enjoy. Look at verse 6. So a woman saw the tree was good and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise. She took its fruit, she ate it, mm, and gave it to her husband. It's good. Go ahead. Try it. Try it. Lust of the flesh is where your body craves for the forbidden and tastes it once more and can't stop. Needs more. There's the temptation to have what you should not and again, it's fulfilling that desire outside the person of God. What he has given is not enough, and the way he has wanted you to have it is not the... It's too limited. I don't want to like limits. Which leads to the next one, which is called pride of life. Verse 7, the, the, uh, Satan tempts with pride by saying, God knows when you eat it, your eyes will be open. You'll, you'll be like him. You'll be like him. You will be like him. And in verse 7, then the eyes of both were open, and they knew. They knew. They knew. I deserve to be like God. I'm that special. I should know too. I love what one writer says about this lie. I'm, I'm not sure ultimately the tree and the sin was about the pleasantness to the eyes, or its excellence to satisfy appetite, since these were common to all trees, which they could freely have. But it was rooted in the power of conferring moral knowledge to those who ate it. The desire of knowledge, and the ambition to be in some sense, this knowledge will make me divine, better than or like God. I want to know. 
It's the vain desire of being like Him or ultimately independent of Him. If I become like God, I don't need Him. It's ultimately the sin. If I become like Him, I don't need Him. I can navigate this world on my own because I'm, I'm knowledgeable. I have wisdom. Why go to God anymore? Sin works like this every time. Every time. What do you want right now that you know God does not want you to have? You all have something you want. What are you contemplating when you're home alone any afternoon? What do you think about? What do you try to figure out, scheme to get around the will of God or to make excuses for why you should have it? Why do you think you deserve it? Why do you get mad at God saying he's not doing things for you? He's failed you. As James says, the moment that desire acts on the want, sin enters. You become pregnant with it. And when sin enters, damage is instantly done. I, used, I heard when you pray, his answer is instantly sent. When you sin, damage is instantly sent. Act four, collateral damage. It's trying to think of the best term for Act 4. What would explain the overwhelming unintended consequences of eating the fruit? And all best phrase I could think of in my mind is collateral damage. It's a military term for damage that incurs which previously you weren't planning on occurring. It's damage that occurs that you really didn't plan for. Collateral damage. So you send a bomb, it goes off to your target, but you weren't planning on the civilians dying in the side street. You weren't planning on the financial cost to repair the streets after the bomb goes off, and you weren't planning on the PTSD of your soldiers. It's damage that's not accounted for before the war begins. In the same way, there's some collateral damage for every sin. Adam and Eve were not ready for this damage. And it gets bad right away. Listen to verse 7. Listen to even their hearts. The eyes of both of them were open and they knew. They knew. They knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together. That's where we get the word girdle. They put this, this covering around their weight. They, something is wrong. Their eyes were opened. As J. Vernon McGee says, before the fall, man did not have a conscience. He was innocent. Innocence is ignorance of evil. Man did not make conscience. It is an accuser that each of us have living on the inside of us. So this conscience sparks because before I was innocent. And if I'm innocent, why do I need to know if I'm doing wrong? You don't. I live merrily on my way. But when evil enters, ding, oh, wait, whoa. Another writer says it was not that they were literally blind up to this moment. They saw the trees. Adam named the animals, so he had to see them. This new sense is this perception of transgression and wrongfulness. When you are innocent, when you are innocent, you go to sleep on your bed at night, you lay your head on the pillow, and you dream sweetly. It's like you can just let the world go, ha. When you are guilty... When you do wrong, you have fits and sweats. You 
Your stomach churns. Your dreams condemn. You scheme, plan, worry, despair. I like what C.S. Lewis said about this whole idea. He said, when a man is sick, when a man is sick physically, he thinks much about his digestion. When a nation is sick, they think much about their politics. And I would say when a soul is sick, they think much about their position before God and other people. Ooh, what do they think of me? If you're innocent, who cares? Why do you care? What does God think of me? Am I guilty? When you're innocent, you're free. When you're not, you always wonder, am I saved? Am I saved? Am I saved? Scary. I think David explains the collateral damage of the heart in Psalm 32, 3 and 4 perfectly well. Listen to this psalm. Psalm 32, 3 and 4. This is the collateral damage of the heart expressed eloquently. And if you've been there, you know what this is. Psalm 32, 3 and 4. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength well, let me, I said three and four. Let me start in three, yeah. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Ah, and then verse five. And then I acknowledged my sin. The unforeseen collateral damage. Sin kills you and those around you. You may get away with the action of the sin, but the memory never leaves you. You may get away with the action of the sin in the moment, you think, but the memory never leaves. In other words, it is death at work in your body. It starts with your mind. It's the spiral of death. Let me show you the spiral of death. It happens here in this passage, and you know when it happens in your life. Verse 8, watch how quickly the joy and bliss of Eden just changes when sin invades. Start in verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man said to his wife, and they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees in the garden. And then the Lord God, he, where are you? There's a disconnect. What happened to the face-to-face relationship? Where are, where are you? Where are you? And he said, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I, I was afraid, scared to death. Because I was naked. I hid myself. Who told you you're naked? How do you, know, how do you know this stuff? Have you eaten the tree? The man said, you know, it's that woman. She did it to me. The woman said, it's that serpent. He did it to me. Look at this spiral. And this spiral happens in every sinner's life. Everyone, it's a spiral of death. The first is this guilt. I'm guilty, and I'm shame of that. I'm shame of who I am. And then, and then when I think about God, I don't want to see God. I just want to hide from Him. I, I don't want to see Him. And then there's fear. You know what? I don't like Him. Why is He so mean? Why is God so mean? I don't want to worship a mean God. Do you? 
was God mean in the first place? Sin causes your hatred and animosity towards God. Do you know that? And then it goes all the way down. It keeps spiraling down. Then you start justifying what I did. Well, huh. Look good. What are you going to blame me for eating? You made the fruit, God. And then you blame other people. She gave it to me. You did this to me. God, you gave me the woman. That's your fault. Why did, why did you give her to me, God? Why did you make me so full of temptation? It's your fault, God. You didn't have to make the world like this. You've said it's the devil. If you're a good God, why, why would you create a devil in the first place? If you knew everything before it happens and you knew he'd tempt me, why didn't you stop him, God? So, you know what? Really, God, I can blame you. It's justification for the sin that you committed when he said, don't eat the fruit. It's all he said, don't eat. Just obey him. Trust him. This is the death spiral. It affects us all. You know, that's all psychology is about, is trying to unravel the damage done by this death spiral. It's like C.S. Lewis said. The more you are into your problems, the more you're probably infested with sin. People that aren't infested with sin, they don't care about psychology. Did you ever hear that psychologists have the most problems? It's kind of interesting, just a thought. Sin makes everything complex, complicated, gunked up, and sticky. Isaiah 59 talks about how you spin the webs of serpents, and they spin more webs and more webs, and it just makes the world messed up. It's the collateral damage. It's collateral damage. I once heard one of the biggest problems with telling lies is that you have to remember them. hard keeping your story straight when you lie. But when you tell the truth and you live in truth, you never have to really remember anything. Because truth tellers lay down at night in peace because they've got nothing to hide. It brings us to the final act where many of us live on a long-term basis. Final act is called hiding. Hiding. Genesis 3 and 7 and 8. The eyes of both were open, they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves, and they made themselves loincloths. Verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord, and then they hid, because they were scared. Man is always hiding. In their shame, they seek to cover up their nakedness. They know they're wrong. They're guilty. They cannot bear to be seen as a failure. They cannot bear to be seen as a failure. We hate to admit we fail. We hate to admit we're broken. We want to prove our significance. We want to prove our independence. And so every moment of our day, for many people, it's to prove themselves, I'm better than you. At least I'm not as bad as you. Our stories are always the best. Did you go fishing? Yeah, but my fish is so much bigger. See how much better I am? Our job titles need to be known. Our paychecks. You get paid more than me? Whoa. You know what that means, don't you? Our, we need to have the last word. We are competing to prove we are not guilty, broken, and naked. All the time. One writer sums this story up perfectly. Listen real close to it. This is powerful. Notice Satan's method first. 
Eve saw the tree was good for food. Second, that it was pleasant to the eye. Third, it was to be desired to make one wise. Satan works from the outside to the inside, from without to within. On the other hand, God begins with the man's heart. Religion is something you rub on the outside. But God does not begin with religion. Christianity is not religion. Christianity is Christ in you. The hope of glory. The book of Hebrews 9.14 talks about the inward Christ, work of Christ. It says, The blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, the blood of Christ, purifies our conscience. Oh. oh, that's it? That's what we need. We need to be set free in here. Purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. I don't need to hide anymore from dead works to prove that I'm worthy because I'm worthy because of the blood of Christ and I'm clean. Oh, I can go to bed at night. Many of us are hiding who we really are by how good at church we are, how happy we are. We hide to prove we're still okay. But sin, the drama, never relents. It makes it wearisome, seducing, it lies, getting us to believe we can live independently from God when we can't. We try to hide by being religious or rich or we quit because it's wearisome. Are you miserable? Are you living under shame and guilt? Do you feel the way one man describes his condition? Here's what he says. Everyone, my friends, my family, my neighbors look upon me as a dirty, guilty thing. It says, if every creature and God himself can see inside of me, and I know his wrath is stored up only for me. Where is your heart? Long to sing one of my favorite songs, a U2 song, where it says, I want to run, I want to hide, I want to tear down the walls that hold me inside. I want to run where the streets have no name, where the sunlight causes the dust cloud to disappear without a trace. I want to take shelter. Is there a place to hide? Is there a place to hide other than fig leaves, religion, good works, titles, rich clothes? Is there a place to hide? Yeah. Yeah. Underneath the blood of Christ, I'm set free from sin. I'm going to invite Jared to come up and lead us in a final song. I'm going to pray for us. And I'm just telling you, if you feel this guilt, it overwhelms you. Run and hide in Christ by faith because your conscience will be cleared by the blood of Christ. It's